Welcome to the ACS Memory Palace. I'm Eric Torres. Many thanks to Nate DeMeo of the podcast, The Memory Palace, for his inspiration behind today's podcast. March 7th, 1991. Rodney King, a 26-year-old African-American construction worker, was driving down Foothill Freeway in the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles. He had had a bit to drink and was speeding. Soon, he began a high-speed chase along the interstate, running from cops. Later, when questioned, he said he hadn't pulled over because drunk driving would be a violation of his parole. By the time he was caught, he'd amassed a following of 15 cops. What followed became one of the most scrutinized events of the decade. King was tased, then struck by batons of four officers surrounding him. According to official numbers, King was struck no less than 56 individual times with batons, kicked seven times by officers, and tased twice. All the while, a young videographer happened to capture the events on his camera. The video went viral. Public outrage bloomed, and soon the officers involved were on trial for police brutality. And in 1992, on April 29th, after seven days of deliberation, three of the four officers involved were acquitted, and the jury was unable to decide the fate of the fourth. The jury was made up of nine whites, one biracial male, one Latino, one Asian American, and not a single African American. Within hours of the verdict, Los Angeles was in chaos. The verdict was delivered at exactly 3.15 p.m. By 3.45, 300 people had gathered outside the LA County Courthouse. The masses grew and grew, and eventually, the gathering changed from a protest to a riot. The riots raged on for six days. By their end, 63 people had been killed, 2,383 people had been injured, more than 12,000 had been arrested, and estimates of property damage were approximately $1 billion. But there's a hidden story to these riots, one that isn't often told. It's forgotten, lost in the great waves of the tragedy that befell the city. It's the story of Korean Americans and Koreatown. You see... In 1992, the relationship between Korean-American and African-American communities in L.A. wasn't the best. A lot of the anger and resentment came from a 1991 incident in which Korean shopkeeper Soon Ja-do shot and killed 15-year-old Latasha Harland after a physical altercation with her regarding the theft of a bottle of orange juice. Security camera footage of the incident showed that Latasha had the money in hand and likely planned to pay for the bottle. It also showed her being shot in the back of the head as she walked away, absent any threat to Soon Jadu's life. Despite a jury recommendation of 16 years in jail, along with her guilty conviction of voluntary manslaughter, the judge decided to let Soon Ja off and convicted her only of 400 hours of community service and five years of probation. The footage was among one of the most played videos on LA News that year, along with the video of Rodney King's beating, and the incident was responsible for the overall worsening of interracial relations. I'd like you to take a moment to digest that background information, because it's important to understand, I think, what the rioters' point of view was, and what their motivations were too.
Whether it was because of this particular incident or other reasons, we can never really know for sure. All we can say is that on April 29th, as ash flew in the air, blown by the winds on that hot summer day, rioters turned their attention to Koreatown, turning on it with a ferocity not seen anywhere else in the city. And as Korean merchants watched their stores be burned and looted, they called emergency services. They called the police and the fire brigade, and they were told the help would not be coming. They watched as police would drive by active looting scenes and do nothing, and were told by operators on call that there was nothing that they could do. There are several roads leading from Koreatown to wealthier, whiter neighborhoods, such as Beverly Hills and West Hollywood. These roads were blockaded and defended by police. Koreatown was abandoned. The Korean-American shopkeepers, however, were not going to take this lying down. They began to organize, forming armed camps to defend themselves and their livelihoods. For 20 years, Koreans had been immigrating and working in this 150-block section of LA, building their shops and businesses out of nothing. When all their hard work was threatened, they rose up to protect it. Korean radio stations were filled with requests for help and protection. A call asking for help with a fire would be met with volunteers bringing buckets of water from nearby buildings. Many first-generation immigrants defended stores and buildings with guns, trained from their years of mandatory service in Korea. This is where the famous images that look straight out of a movie of armed Koreans on rooftops or ducked behind cover come from. If you've never seen any, I'd highly recommend taking a look on Google. Simply searching LA riots Korean and going to images should be enough. These brave store owners and volunteers, however, were a minority of Korean business owners. The vast majority were forced to abandon their shops and the livelihood that they had built and worked for for years, decades even. These businesses were often family-owned, and so all around LA, it became a common sight to see a whole family gathered around the radio, listening as the Korean stations updated the list of shops destroyed, looted, and burned in real time, desperately praying that theirs would not be among the damaged. By the third day of the riots on May 1st, 10,000 National Guard were deployed into LA to control the situation. Again, despite being one of the, if not the, largest hotspot for rioting, Koreatown was overlooked. Koreans are seen again and again on interviews, asking, where are the cops? Where is the National Guard? By the fourth day, troop strength was up to almost 14,000 in the city, with Marines and Army Corps coming in to assist the National Guard. The worst of the violence had passed, and so Korean radio stations called for Koreans to gather for a peace rally in Koreatown. 30,000 strong, the rally ran from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m., and they walked through the majority of Koreatown. They walked along the burned buildings and destroyed stores, looking at the rubble, chanting, We want justice. We want peace. 
Small bursts of violence continued for a while after the fifth day, but the riots were largely over. The aftermath was devastating. As I mentioned in the beginning of this podcast, 63 people died. 2,383 were injured. More than 12,000 were arrested. And property damage was over 1 billion. What I didn't mention, however, was that of that 1 billion, half, $500 million in damages was sustained by Korean-owned businesses. Over 2,300 Korean-owned stores were destroyed, and two-thirds of them had been completely uninsured. The effects of this huge loss can still be felt in the Korean-American community of LA today. Fewer than one in four of damaged Korean businesses ever reopened, and many families never truly recovered. But life goes on. They rebuilt what they could, cleaning up their area with the same hard work that built it up in the first place. And if you walk through Koreatown today, you would never even know of the tragedy that befell it almost 30 years ago. The vibrant, bustling scene makes it hard to imagine the scene of the riots and the fear these families felt those nights. The city's moved on, and by and large, so have its people. Still, if you hang around long enough, you might hear Sa-i-gu mentioned. April 29th, it means. Shorthand for the riots. A simple reminder that even in the worst of times, there's still a community, and no Korean is left behind.